0: Too soon. So. Well, I was, was wondering.
1: I don't see anybody giving anything, so
0: that was kind of an awkward time to stand <laughs> here next to you.
1: So, um, what do you want me to do?
0: <laughs> so you stay right there. Okay. Um, I'm, I want to introduce Kent to you, um, Kent. Uh, thank you. Round of applause here for Kent. He's, <laughs> thank you for a, that
1: round of indifference. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right.
0: Kent. I've known, we've known each other for a really long time. I served at a church in Bellingham, and Ken at that time was at a church in Mount Vernon, and so we kind of were in the same pastoral circles, but really never connected until about two years ago, and I, it was probably January or February of 2020. We we Ken approached me, he says he's he was kind of in the in the throes of retirement, about to retire at that point, point. and he's like, hey, we should get together and hang out, and I said that would be awesome, and, and there was a little more purpose to it, some some mentoring and just some investment and some coaching that I could get from him, and so we met, and like a month later, the lockdown started, and we decided, oh, we should just do this online, and, and so once a month, we meet via Zoom, and, and Kent has been an incredible encouragement to me uh, over the last two years. In fact, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure that, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this in front of my church. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would still be in ministry, honestly, uh, if it wasn't for some of the prayer and some of the encouragement and some of the perspective that Kent provided me over those two years. Just to, just to keep everything in perspective and to keep the Lord and the hope that we can find in him uh, alive in my own life. And so he was very much an encourager and a pastor to me during that time. And uh, I'm excited to have him here. We've been trying to have you uh, preach for a really long time and, and it finally worked out. And Kent's going to tell so part of Kent's story is he goes to Russia a lot. And uh, he's, he's been ministering to pastors in Russia for a really long time. He's going to tell us about that experience and also as a missionary living in Sweden uh, for the last five years. And so uh, please give Kent a round of applause. We're excited to hear the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Oh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, it's March 20th. You know what that means? That means we survived to spring of 2020. <laughs> no small thing. And it's, it's nice to see uh, your faces. I don't know any of you, but it's nice to see anybody's faces on this morning. Uh, I have known Dan, as he said. Uh, everything he said was uh, was true from his perspective. <laughs> I have been a covenant pastor, a pastor in the covenant church uh, since 1984, 85, something like that, ordained uh, in, in 1986. I've served several covenant churches over the years, and uh, the last covenant church I served was in uh, Bethany Covenant Church in Mount Vernon, Washington. Anybody ever been to Mount Vernon? Seen the tulips up there? Yeah, okay, good. Um, When when my wife and I were 59 and I'd been at Bethany for about 11 years, we began to ask the Lord, how do we we finish this work life well? How do we finish this life of ministry well? Anybody ever been 59? Some of you have been, I see. Uh, And some of you are anticipating making that. And and, uh, because of some work that I had done in Russia in the past, we were commissioned as missionaries in the Covenant Church to serve in Russia, and then we lived in Sweden, so we were commissioned to serve in Russia and in Sweden. My primary ministry uh, among the people of Russia and Sweden was to um, pastor, to coach, or mentor, there's lots of different terms, uh, pastors in Russia. And as I did that in Russia and we lived in Sweden, I expanded the net and did some uh, mentoring of pastors in Sweden as well. And then in 2019, when we moved back to the United States, uh, finishing out our our ministry life here, uh, I incorporated a couple of of young pastors, and I was uh, excited to have Dan be one of those. And it has been a great relationship working with Dan. As he says, I've been to Russia quite a bit. I've been there, uh, I think, 41 times since 1993. Uh, Currently, lots of people are very interested in that. You know, go go figure. Uh, I'm getting calls, people saying, you know, people that I hadn't talked to in years calling me or sending me email, setting up Zoom conference calls with their fellowship groups to talk through what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. I have only been to Ukraine once. I was in Kiev just one time. Um, so my relationships are with Russians. And... Um, I just want to say, and I'm, and I'm not going to talk a lot about Sweden and Russia and stuff. Sorry about that, but I do want to say to give some perspective that um, what's going on there is is really wrong. It's really bad. It's really evil. It's really real. You know, Paul says that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and power. And we all agree with that, right? Say yes. Yeah, Amen. We agree with that. We say, yes, that's right. But the reality is that principalities and powers use flesh and blood in an evil way. And what's happening right now is flesh and blood is being uh, uh, terrorized, tortured, and killed. And there's no way to sugarcoat that. That's exactly what's going on. And... Because my relationships are with Russians, I, it's, it's kind of have to be careful that I don't say anything good about Russians because kind of they're the enemy, you know. But the reality is that's not true. The people that I know, the normal Russian people in the street, basically are not the enemy. And we need to pray for the people of Ukraine, absolutely. But I have to pray for my friends, the people that I have worked with over the last 20 or 20 or more years. And the reality is is that the majority of the people in Russia uh, believe the news in the Russian media that's completely controlled by the state, 100% at this point. And so to get contrary information, you have to A, have a computer, you have to have internet connection, you now not only have to have an internet connection, you now have to know how to have a VPN. You know what that is? is it what, what is that? <laughs> Virtual Private Network, is that what that stands for? Okay, now how do you know that? Way to go. <laughs> you have to connect with the VPN, which basically says I'm not in Russia, but you are. Then you have to know where to go for news. You have to be able to, you have to trust that you can get some news, you have to trust the internet, that's not a given, and then you also probably have to speak English. So the narrow band of people who are getting what we would call good, balanced information or news is increasingly small. Some of those people are my friends. And I think what I'd like to do is just read you a very short statement written by a friend of mine. She posted it to, to Facebook, actually uh, a couple of weeks ago already. It was in the first week of this. And I've, I've, I've edited it down, but I just want you to, this is a woman that I've worked with for years, since 2009, have worked in partnership and ministry. And she says this. Uh, she lives in the Ural region, by the way, in the center part of Russia. She says, together with the whole world, we woke up on the 24th of February and learned that the introduction of Russian troops into Ukraine because Putin wanted it so. This is a crime against its own people, disinformation concealing the facts of what is happening and lying about the boogeyman. I just don't understand how in the 21st century it's possible to fool millions like this. It's scary to wake up in the morning and realize that the whole world is against you simply because you were born in a country where you didn't decide anything. We are praying and crying for Ukraine. This is a Russian and there are those Russians. So I wanna encourage you as you pray for world peace, as you pray for uh, an end to this war, as you pray for the Ukrainians that are being uh, terrorized and, and, and killed, to also remember to pray for the Russian people who are struggling uh, against this oppression as well. Let's pray. Almighty God, our, our hope lies in you alone. We praise your name as we lift up our cares to you. And today, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, an act of compassion can be an act of leadership as well. In times of tragedy and in times of celebration, in times of joy and in times of despair, we... As people of the book, look to scripture for comfort and for guidance, right? Amen? Okay, let me just say something parenthetically. Am I, am I, still, am I still on the camera if I'm here? There's blue tape. I, I know that I'm supposed to stay in some kind of a box. But let me just say that um, for the past 20 years or so when I go to Russia, I've been working primarily with Pentecostals. And so they give me a little more help when I'm preaching, so if you feel inclined at all to say yes, or that's right, or Lord help him, or amen, you, you can do that. So if I say something, that, so we are people of the book and we turn to the scripture for guidance and comfort. Amen, amen. hallelujah, that's right, that's what I thought you were going to do. And so today we want to turn to the scripture again because we do need comfort. We do need guidance. We do need a sense of joy and a sense of, of knowing that we're in this together. This morning what I want to do is turn to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, the 13, 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, is, it, it represents kind of a turning point in the gospel. You see, there's four gospels, right? And the Gospel of John has 21 uh, chapters to it. Uh, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John talk about the life of Jesus' ministry from uh, from the beginning of his ministry. Basically, the three-year span is compacted into 12 chapters. The rest, the last nine chapters, describe the last week of Jesus' life, plus what some uh, in the in the parlance of Netflix, it's it's uh, with some bonus material. Okay, so it takes us up to the resurrection of Jesus, and then there's the story of Jesus uh, making breakfast for his disciples on the beach, which is one of the greatest stories ever. So he's got some bonus material in the Gospel of John. But So the first 12 chapters are uh, the life of Jesus for three years, and then the last nine chapters are that, that really that, just that last week of Jesus' life. And chapter 13, which we're going to look at today, is kind of the hinge on which this gospel turns. Now, in chapter uh, 13, verses 1 through 11, Jesus begins to tell the story of what takes place in that famous upper room, okay? What was the main thing, and this will be the interactive part of this sermon, what was the main thing that happened in that upper room? What do we remember the upper room for? It wasn't, not, not Pentecost, but thank you for, thank you for playing. <laughs> what? The Last Supper. Yeah, we always think, you know, you're in the, you're in the upper room, you're gathered with the Jesus in the Last Supper. Now, for some reason, John does not clue, include anything about the Last Supper he, when he talks about the type in the upper room, which is ironic because he's the one who was leaning against Jesus. We believe that he's the one that was leaning against Jesus during that meal. But John doesn't say anything about that. And you kind of think, well, why doesn't John talk about that when he uh, describes uh, that that night? And I think that it's, here's what I think. Can I just tell you what I think? And that is that uh, the Gospel of John, we believe the Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels to be written. John is uh, widely regarded as the only of the original uh, Twelve disciples, the only one to die of natural causes. He died as a very old man in Ephesus. And so he wrote it later. So he certainly would have had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he saw that, well, they covered they covered the basics of the story of the Last Supper. They covered it very well. And then I just wonder <coughs> if John isn't saying, you know, but there was something else that happened that night that really mattered. There was something that really was, was important to tell that the other three don't, don't really cover it. They don't really mention it. It's, not, it's, it's lost in the story of the Last Supper, which is important. We all agree with that, right? Say amen. Yeah, we agree that that's important. But John says, you know, I think there's something else. Something else that happened that night. Because we see that an act of compassion can also be an act of leadership. So it's as if John says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a towel. You see, verses one through eleven tell the story of, of the disciples gathering that night with Jesus in the upper room. And man, it was it must have been just a heady thing. Jesus was the was a celebrity. They're getting ready to, to celebrate the Passover. They're in, they're in Jerusalem. Things are popping. And Jesus is the biggest celebrity in town at that point. And they're his boys. They're there with him. And they're gathered for dinner. I mean, that was a dinner ticket that would have been hard to get. And they were there with him. Now, tradition is that, I mean... In, in that culture, is that when you come in to dinner, then then one of the servants washes your feet, and you do wash your feet because your feet are dirty. The roads are either dusty or muddy. They're, there's really no other options. Apparently, it's either dust or mud. Um, if it was North Bend, it would be it would be mud. Um, so they. You come in and the the lowest person on the social stratus would would wash the feet of the others. Not as punishment, but as custom. Generally speaking, it would be a servant. If there is no servant present, then it would be a social hierarchy. And and I'm just the messenger here. It would be the wife washing the feet of the husband or the children washing the feet of the parents. Something like that. Well, here they come into a room and they're... There isn't an uh, obvious social order. They, Jesus is the pinnacle, no question about it. But remember, these are the disciples who are arguing about, about what? About who's greatest in the kingdom. Who, you know, <laughs> James and John got their mother to talk to Jesus saying, can you, can you have my boy sitting on your right and your left? You know, they're talking. That's the conversation, that's the chatter going on. And just imagine that Jesus is there. He's kind of looking around. They're all kind of standing around. Maybe they're all thinking, uh, our feet are dirty. There's the water. What's going to happen here? And so what Jesus does is he takes off his outer garment. And apparently there was a kind of a, uh, an undergarment. I don't know if it was like underwear. It, it was it's just a, a tunic kind of thing. And then a, a, a cloak. There or something that went over it, Okay. He takes this off, and everybody's kind of watching, he takes it off, and he takes a towel, and he wraps the towel around his waist, kind of maybe like an apron kind of thing, or like, uh, anybody ever watch football? The quarterback's got that towel hanging off the back, you know, he's kind of, so he can wash his hands. So Jesus has a towel around his waist, and he gets some water, and I'm sure that everyone in that room was humiliated. Everyone in that room is just horrified. As Jesus sets down the, the basin and he kneels down to wash their feet. And of course, <laughs> Peter, you know, Peter's a little bit of a loud mouth. And, and, and so he's just passionate. So he says, Lord, I see what's going on here. Absolutely not! I'm not you, you can't wash my feet. That just can't happen. Let John do it. <laughs> That's the subtext. He said, <clears throat> and Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, I can't have anything. You can't have anything to do with me. You know, this is Peter in for a penny, in for a pound. Well, then, not just my feet, Lord. Wash my whole. Give me the give me the full full meal deal. It's like going to the car wash and paying the, the 12 bucks instead of the eight bucks, you know? Give me the everything. And Jesus says, Peter, God, you're just you're just not getting it. You're just not getting it. You know, everybody knows that this is not about this is not about giving you a bath. This is about washing your feet. About, that's all you need. That's what happened that night. As Jesus demonstrated this, this act of compassion, this act of kindness for these men, was also an act of leadership. You see, Jesus was fully aware of two things, particularly that night. He was fully aware of who he was. There was no ambiguity about this. There was no, uh, he's not confused about the social stratus and the social and all that stuff. He, he, He was fully aware. The scripture, John tells us that Jesus, with the full knowledge that the Father had put everything in his hand and that he had come from God and he was going to God. It's not like Jesus had a confusion about this. He knew that he should be the last person in that room to wash people's feet. He was fully aware of who he was. He was also fully aware of who the other people were in the room. John tells us that Jesus was aware that Judas was going to betray him that night, and that Peter was going to deny him that night. Jesus was fully aware of who he was. And Jesus was fully aware of who these men were. And that brings us to the sermon text for the day. See, I haven't even started the sermon yet, that's all. I'm going to be reading John 13, 12 through 17 from uh, the J.B. Phillips translation. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his clothes, he sat down again and spoke to them. Do you realize what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're quite right, for I am your teacher and your Lord. But if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you must be ready to wash one another's feet. I have given you this as an example so that you may do as I have done. Believe me, the servant is not greater than the master and the messenger is not greater than the one Who sent him? Once you've realized these things, you will find your happiness in doing them. An act of compassion can also be an act of leadership. The message in this text is not a subtle one, it's not, uh, you know, it's pretty clear. Jesus tells them what he's done. Now, I don't think he just simply washed their feet as an illustration of something else. I think he saw in that room their feet needed to be washed. Nobody else was doing it. He did it. That was an act of compassion. That was an act of love that he showed how he loved those men. But he then used that as an an object lesson, as a way to teach and to lead and to guide. He could only do that because he had already done that. See what I'm saying? He can only, the the example only had power because he had already washed their feet. He says, I've done this as an example. We say a picture is worth a thousand words and uh, actions speak louder than words. We all know this from our lives. A number of years ago, I was uh, I was with some other pastors, and we were uh, I was hosting some pastors in in Moscow, in Russia. Has anybody ever been to Moscow? Anybody here? Okay, some. Moscow is a huge city. There's like between 12 and 18 million people. <laughs> How's that for a span? They don't really know, but that's a lot. No matter how you count it, and they they're very very proud of their subway system, and um, and then also. In a lot of large cities where there's, a, where there's large city streets or boulevards, they rather than having people walk on crosswalks, they have kind of these tunnels that go under. You go downstairs and you go through a tunnel and you come out on the other street. Well, we had a, a, a pastor who was giving us a walking tour of Moscow. His name was Andre. And I was with these other pastors, and so we, we walked through this, tunnel and we came out these stairs and we came up onto the street and and so we're all standing there on the street and I'm looking around, I'm looking for Andre and I can't see him you know, and it's like oh no, because what you don't want to do is get lost in the crowd you don't want to get separated, especially from your guide, right? So I'm looking around and I look back down the stairs and and I, I just took a double take looking down the stairs this is what I saw You want to go ahead And put that first picture up there You see All of us We were all pastors There were about five of us And the other four of us Walked right past this lady This lady was sitting At the bottom of the stairs On, on, a, on something Like a, a box or something And she was begging And she she was blind She was literally A blind beggar Okay And I was so Nervous about losing my other guys. I just walked right by. I hardly noticed, you know. I kind of, I hardly noticed. I went up and, and, um, but Andre, who was his pastor, he stopped. He talked with her. Now, bear in mind, I, we're paying him to show us around Moscow, not to be doing this. But he stopped and he talked with her. And he knelt down beside her. And if you'll notice this black thing in his hand, that's a flask with oil. He was prepared. He's always prepared. I felt really super awkward doing this, but I thought, and I took this picture feeling really awkward taking a picture of this. But I just, this is, you know, after, after more than 20 years in Russia, this is one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken. This was no big deal. Andre was not making a big splash out of this. This is just simply what he was doing. This act not only changed how I viewed him, it changed how I view beggars, and it, the most important thing is it changed me. You see, this act of compassion was also an act of leadership. Now, uh, go ahead and you can take it down. I'm assuming that if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you're in this building, you probably have a relationship with Jesus, or you're at least kind of wondering about that. That part of that relationship with Jesus is that you purpose, that is you intend, that it's your plan to be a disciple of Jesus. And to be a disciple, we do not only what he teaches, we do what he has done. And so let me ask three questions. That only you can answer. And this is not the interactive part of the sermon. I don't want to hear these out loud. I want you to, these are questions for meditation. The first question is, for whom are you modeling? That is, as you live your life of faith and as you are trying to be a disciple of Jesus and his, one of his main commands is to make other disciples, For whom are you modeling? That is, this gets to the person, to the purpose, and the recipient of our modeling of our Christian behavior. Who are you modeling for? The second question is, what are you modeling? What are you trying to model? What are you you intentionally about modeling in your, in the the way that you live your life? The way you express your faith, the way that you uh, not only show that you are a disciple, but you go about making disciples, what is it that you're modeling? And this is kind of a, a I'm talking about now a concept or of a principle. You're modeling love, you're modeling grace, you're modeling kindness. By the way, I just want to lift up kindness. I just want to lift up kindness. If we can do anything in our world, if we can do anything in our lives just to be kind to each other, Husbands for wives, wives for husbands, parents for kids. Just if we can be kind. That's a whole other sermon series. The third thing is then the rubber meets the road question. How are you doing this? How are you modeling for others? What are you doing? What specific action are you taking? Now, Andre was not doing this to teach us a lesson. Andre was simply being Andre, doing what he does as a follower of Jesus. But he also was serving at the same time by being faithful. Dan mentioned that we we lived in Sweden. We lived in Sweden for about five years. We happened to, we just happened to move to Sweden in... Um, the fall of 2014. If you kind of remember in your mind what's going on, 2014 uh, in the fall was just the beginning of the largest wave of war refugees since World War II, prior to the Ukrainian crisis. Sweden opened their door. Sweden has been very open to war refugees. And they said, if you can get to, to Sweden, please come. And so there were... Uh, hundreds of, a couple hundred thousand refugees from the Middle East, primarily from Syria, flowed into Sweden. We lived in a village in the very far south of Sweden of only 2,000 people. And there were close to a hundred refugees from the Middle East that were welcomed into that village. Let me tell you a, a quick story about... How are we doing for time? Oh, i will make it a really quick story. In Sweden in the summer, oftentimes they don't have church service because everyone's gone anyway so they just say we don't so our particular church we would have what was called a a, a fika a fika unduct. that is fika is coffee coffee time so we, and onduct is devotion so we would have a, a devotional just a kind of a coffee hour with a bible verse on sunday evenings we're in there, we're sitting in, in in the in the fellowship hall of this church and we see this kid Everybody kind of sees this 13-year-old kid kind of poking his head in the door. None of us knew him from anywhere. And he was, was dressed pretty ratty. And it turns out, I won't tell you the whole story because I don't have the time. But it turns out that he was the advanced guard sent out by his family, 13 of whom were still waiting out in the foyer of the church afraid to come in the room. They sent him in to see what was happening. They had arrived in our village... The day before, from Syria through North Africa, all those pictures you saw on TV of people in the rubber boats and the, all that kind of stuff, they were those people. And they showed up. He didn't speak any Swedish, didn't speak any English, but we happened to have somebody, uh, a, a Syrian person who had already come to the church that, there that night, and she spoke Arabic, found out the whole family was out there. They welcomed the family, and some of them didn't even have shoes. And here's what they said. They said, we came to the village, and what we were told is if we had any needs, we were supposed to come to this building. We were supposed to come to this church. And... For fika, they will serve, oftentimes they'll serve cake, but they slice it. I mean, you could practically see through this dessert. You know, it's so thin and just kind of, you know, very polite. They were cutting off chunks, chunks this wide for these people. They were sitting, they welcomed them and seated them down. These are Muslim people from Syria. You can imagine, it's, it's threatening walking through the doors of this church being a Christian from North Bend. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk in through doors of a Christian church if you're from the Middle East and you're a Muslim? But they came in the door because somebody said, if you need something, those people will help you. So they walk through the door, they get the big pieces of cake. And while they're eating the cake, I was noticing some, some of the ladies from the church are leaving. I'm thinking, oh, no, maybe they're offended or whatever. Not at all. They were going home and already collecting clothing to bring back before the people left, finished their cake. And go ahead and put the other picture up. Thanks. As a result of this, the church set up uh, language classes, Swedish language classes. They set up a clothing room. This is actually my wife in the, in the white hair. She looks Swedish. Uh, but she, she set up, th- this is the matriarch of that family. And we set up a clothing room. We did all this kind of stuff. And what was cool about that is that This church modeled for my wife and for me how to react, because we didn't know how to receive refugees. We didn't know how to receive war refugees. But you see, the Swedes had done it before. 20 years ago, there was a war in Bosnia. And they received, this church had received all these Bosnian refugees, and they had housed some good friends of ours, a guy named Tomas, by the way, and his wife, Eveline, They're as normal as you can get. They are white bread Swedes. They have the little yellow house, not in the village of 2000, but outside the village of 2000. I mean, we're talking that. They housed Bosnians in their home for about three years. So they knew how to do this. It was their example that set us, established our ministry. Their act of compassion was also an act of leadership. Anybody remember Michael Card, the musician Michael Card? You've been to Russia, you remember Michael Card? You're the only one raising your hand in all these things. <laughs> Michael Card was a Christian singer and he wrote a, towel, uh, a, a song called The Basin and the Towel. The words go like this. In an upstairs room, a parable is just about to come alive. And while they bicker about who's best, with a painful glance, he'll silently rise. Their savior servant must show them how through the will of the water and the tenderness of the towel. In an ordinary place, in an ordinary day, the parable can come alive when one will kneel and one will yield. Our savior servant must show us how through the will of the water and the tenderness of the towel. Genuine service is an act of the will. It is something we must purpose to do. And an act of compassion can be an act of leadership as well. That is, kindness can show the way for others to follow. My encouragement for us today, my call from the scripture today is to choose this day to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Christ and choose this day to take up the basin and the towel as you serve those around you. Would you please bow your heads as we pray? Lord God, we are so grateful that you were so human. That you had these friends, that you were willing to wash their feet, that you loved them enough to be real with them. Thank you, Lord, for this example. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, for your grace. I pray for the good people that are here today, for the people that are listening to this today. I pray that you would continue to pour out your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be open to your Spirit. I pray, God, that we would uh, turn to you not only for example, but for empowerment, that we might be your disciples. And through our acts of kindness, we might lead the way for others to come into your presence and to know you. So we praise you and we give you thanks in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.